It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. moment, 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 moment. Oh, y'all can't. Okay, I can hear myself. What's going on, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to another week, another Friday of Mic'd Up on OM. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. I'm broadcasting live. My theme music just played for the second time. <laughs> I'm broadcasting live from Workshop, uh, located here at 1503 King Street, out of the OM Radio Studios. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited about today's show, especially off the heels of last week. Um, I want to give a shout-out to my girl, um, Kelly Doyle, who came in and was really um, just the perfect uh, guest, I believe, um, outside of my daddy or my Aunt Vicky, a perfect guest to really uh, dive into um, issues going on on Wadmalaw Island, where I currently live with my family. Um, just an update for those who listened last week. Uh, we all showed up. <laughs> we Wadmalaw Island showed up. I want to just say shout out to our, our entire community on Wadmala Island, who showed up at uh, the city, excuse me, the county council meeting that took place on Tuesday. Uh, over 300 people showed up to show their opposition, to voice their opposition to the proposed rezoning efforts uh, launched by the Bolt family. Um, the Bolts did show up. I'm not going to really honor, I'm not even going to, uh, I guess, I don't want to, I don't want to create continue to, to talk about them on my platform because I don't think they are very credible people and they've proven themselves to be not only harmful to marginalized mem members of the community but but to be deceitful but I will say that we stood up in numbers um, we showed out we showed up and, and we are fighting every day every month every hour to keep Wadmalaw rural so thank you Kelly thank you to her uh, her husband Augie and to the many 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 other residents of Wadmalaw Island who wrote me who sent me messages on instant messenger who listened to the podcast if they couldn't listen live last week shout out to all of them um, I'm very appreciative for the support uh, I, this is a radical a progressive hour of activist radio so I know I'm not going to be something that everyone enjoys continuously but understand this I'm just fighting to amplify the voices or rather amplify the issues facing our most marginalized community members regardless of our politics I am here for the small the little guy who is underserved and usually silenced by certain mechanisms so if you enjoyed last week's show hopefully you'll stay tuned and continue to consume uh, mic'd up either here live on own radio every Friday at four or um, on SoundCloud or on iTunes so let's just jump into this week's show. Got a little bit of a late start, so I'm, but usually that throws me off. I'm actually on point. I got everything recording. My light, my board is light, lit up properly, so um, I'm going to jump into it. Um, what, what I originally wanted to discuss last week was the uh, recent findings, um, an audit. An audit was launched to investigate uh, the local Charleston Police Department to determine whether or not uh, the department was, uh, in fact, policing with racial bias and discriminating against uh, members of the community and policing solely on, on the, along the lines of race. Not solely, but policing um, based on race. Um, and so it was a, a firm called CNA. And I'm going to pull, I'm pulling up the PDF right now. All right, so it's a firm called CNA. 
Uh, and uh, I, I got the audit up. It's available online. The Post and Courier published the link to the PDF. Um, so you can download it. It it is 135 pages. Did I read 135 pages? No. Did I read the first 30 pages? Yes. (laughs) Um, A lot of it is like, you know, some blank pages, uh, an introduction, uh, who's involved, a lot of information like that. Uh, So I did go over that. And also what I did do is I've been following the local reporting from the Post and Courier uh, I've been following the reporting from them, so I've also been able to to engage with the topic that way. And the other thing I did was also attend when they um they opened up a series of uh, listening sessions to the public, so they can they can um solicit feedback and and stories from uh, community members who felt. Um, maybe they had an experience they wanted to share about some unfair police practices. So I did attend one listening session um, a few months back. I cannot recall. I had to pull up the article that actually um, one of the reporters from the Post and Courier attended my. Um, actually, I can pull it up right now because Michaela Porter sent me um, sent me a copy. She and I went back and forth about the coverage. We'll get into that in a second. But basically, um, basically what. So I participated in the listening sessions. I was able to listen to residents. I myself live in Charleston County. So my police department is the sheriff's office, the county. We share a police department with the rest of the county. We share the sheriff's office because I live on Wadnerla. We don't have a mayor. We don't have a police department. We have a we have a post office. Um, and we like it that way, just so you know. So we're good. Um, so I don't have so I I really wanted to make sure that I didn't come in the room and take up space, but also knowing that progressive ideas um, in Charleston exist. But I know that a lot of times discussions don't hold space for those progressive voices. So what I did do is listen about two thirds of the time uh, to the residents and to their stories. Um, I didn't ask too many questions um, and I wanted to hear what the experience was from the everyday uh, resident of Charleston, be it those who live on the peninsula or throughout surrounding areas like West Ashley, and James Island, you know, certain parts of the area that's, that is considered the city of Charleston. And I, I will tell you this, the room was made up of mostly older residents, not all old. There were a lot of um, young, like I would say like youngish in the, like the mid to late 20s, working professionals. It was predominantly black, but it was, um, there were white residents uh, in the room as well, and it it would it would tip the scales kind of tipped more toward the elderly side, but there was a good um, good variety of ages and, and different types of people there. So um, they explained what the audit was attempting to to do, and then they broke us up into like they broke us up into tables in this specific place where we were. I believe it was a house of worship. And so, like, one of their, like, maybe their halls where, you know, they have, like, communal spaces. So they broke us up, and we all sat around all these circular tables that were scattered throughout the room. And it was it was a packed room. It was, it was a lot of people there who were interested in sharing their experiences. And so I was able to listen to black women of all ages, um, some members that were a member of the ILA union, um, young people, uh, people my age, I'm 38, people my age and a little bit younger, talk about how they were pulled over for like window tent, uh, for noise ordinances. Uh, for one woman, uh, really broke my heart. She talked about, um, she talked about how she was humiliated at work. She was inside her place of employment, um, but in the parking lot, there seemed to be some sort of um, fender bender. And someone either witnessed her walking in around the time of the incident and accused her of of, of hitting someone else's car with um, with hers. 
and she was, uh, you know, questioned by the police very, uh, like, indiscreetly. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking at um, seeing this. Uh, yeah, I believe I was at the uh, Ebenezer AME Church. No, I wasn't. No, 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 this is not it. Um, let see, with Michaela. She didn't send me. Okay, yeah, here we go. Nope, can't find it. But, um... But, yeah, I was listening to uh, this woman recount how she was, like, you know, just questioned by the police in a way that was humiliating in front of her coworkers and how she was basically treated like she was a guilty party. Uh, so that story kind of broke my heart. And there was the one other young lady uh, or woman who recounted something that happened to her daughter where her daughter was pulled over and pregnant and was put in a, a, a stressful situation and, you know, how she and her daughter talked afterwards about what to do next time if she's ever stopped by the police pregnant or not it was just so many different experiences uh being shared there and I didn't have a specific one that was recent again I I just I just haven't had that experience not to say that they aren't real because clearly the room was full of people who who had experiences um but I do not reside on the peninsula so that might have cut cut, uh, cut down my interactions with the police significantly so in listening to to those stories um what I wanted to 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 the study to that just came out with, I believe it. Yeah. It says, um, this was provided. This was provided maybe like a week ago. Um, what I was hoping to see was more, more substance or more findings or analysis that articulated the problem and what I, and, and reflect what I heard in those listening sessions. Um, the great thing about the, let me start off with what was good about the study. What was good about the study was that in its introduction, they started off by acknowledging the city's history and role in um, the enslavement of Africans for exploited labor. Um, so they did start off um, at the uh, like mid-1800s and talked about slavery and our city's recent attempts to acknowledge slavery with that pitiful apology and that pitiful almost not recognized apology by city council. Um, but they do talk about slavery. They talk about how, and I guess they were trying to make people understand the connection between slavery and current day policing of black people. But basically what it did was illustrate that, Hey, Charleston, you have a history of being really racist to black people. Um, so much so that what you did in the 1800s still impacts what you do today. Um, that's, that's my summary of what I read because again, they tried to tie it in. It wasn't the most skillful, um, illustration, but I think it was effective for those who don't study, uh, you know, the history of police patrols, slave patrols, and policing in America. I thought it was effective for people to understand, hey, you know what, what we did back then impacts how we treat marginalized and black people, um, but marginalized communities and black people today. So um, they they uh, acknowledged the history that uh, enslavement of Africans played into modern day policing. And then um, what I liked about the audit was it did outline some objectives. Some, of course, like most studies or you know disparity studies or um, you know analysis of, of, of treatment of folk uh, of this nature, they come up with uh, not just um, outlining the the objectives, but they also do a good job to um, tell you how they came to these conclusions. So they outlined that pretty well. Um, there's a great, uh, there's a great, there's a summary. Um, there's some data analysis. Uh, they talked about the community meetings, the listening session, so you can get uh, a better understanding as to what I sat through. It says uh, more than 290 community members from Charleston, from the Charleston area attended these meetings. Uh, so I was one of, I was part of one. And when I say it was packed, 
it was packed. It felt like half of that two ninety was in that one room. And um, you know, so so the I think the I think uh and the study did I didn't leave with this, I barely lead. The study did find that there was um there was in fact racial bias and discrimination in the way that the police department polices uh polices black people and people of color. Um, so that was good to just blatantly see that uh, validated, even though, like I mentioned in, in online and in ver- various speaking engagements, we already knew that. Um, if we we already had a memory, a member of the Avery's staff in here to outline, you know, what their study they um, recently conducted a. Um, a, the state of racial disparities in Charleston County study uh, that spanned between it went it, it ran over it they studied the year 2000 through 2015 and within that 15 year 16 year period they were able to um, break down disparities in education break down disparities uh, economically and of course in policing so much of what the CNA audit that was recently concluded much of what was founded found there was already substantiated in the Avery Research Center's uh, study that came out a couple years ago. It's a couple years old, but it's still a rich document that holds a lot of anecdotal and a lot of historical information and data that's really important, and it really helps you understand things like gentrification, housing um, disparities, so on and so forth. It's a really well, well-made um, or well-conducted study. Uh, so, yeah, CNA already already pretty much, you know, just kind of echoed what I read there. Um, what I don't like about the study, uh, I remember at the listening sessions, I remember one of the leaders um, of the, you know, of the, of the of that night's listening session, someone, one of the lead organizers, rather, mentioning, introducing themselves and then mentioning the background of those who will be conducting or leading the uh, the listening sessions table by table. And uh, they were former members of law enforcement. And I was like, uh, I, I, remember, I remember just being puzzled and just filing it away. I had a notebook, so I jotted it down. And, and so I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird to have former police people who might be more sympathetic to law enforcement conduct a study about, hey, are they the bad guy or, you know, are they doing bad things? So I filed that away. So that's one thing I don't like about the study, and I think that a lot of credibility, or at least the objectivity, can be questioned if you have former members of the law enforcement of law enforcement conducting the study. Um, I, I did, like I said, I jotted down those notes, but I wasn't one hundred percent sure if I heard it correctly. So what I did this week, um, I did this yesterday. I called one of the managing directors that was listed on the study, uh, a Dr. Coldren, C O L D R E N. I called him and asked him if he could just satisfy a question, and I just asked him very plainly, like, "Hi, my name is Tamika. I'm an activist in Charleston. I host a show called Mic'd Up on Ohm, and I am doing a show about the CNA audit." of the police department, the local police department, can you confirm for me were there members of, and this is what I asked them, can you confirm for me whether or not there were members, uh, former members of law enforcement uh, employed to help conduct the study? And he then went and quote said, not, not all of the, not all of the participants, but yes, some of them. So it was confirmed. What I had in my notes was true. So you have former law enforcement officials conducting a study. Doesn't mean that they're bad guys. Doesn't mean that they're going to like, you know, do something foul. But I do think that that perspective is important and that perspective colors the results of the study. 
that's the other thing. So that's the thing I really didn't like about the study off rip was you got cops investigating cops. The other thing I didn't really care for about the study was, um, to me, uh, I think I don't to wait. So so that perspective of having uh, former law enforcement kind of colors how how things are presented, right? So throughout the study, you can get kind of wrapped up in item item two, section twelve, uh, part B part 2.3 part you can really get kind of bogged down by the um the density of the study and that's like with any study um back when i my first job at an undergrad i had to do a disparity study for the entire state of new jersey um regarding mbes and you know um a bunch of other government contracts and stuff like that for women and in, in minority-owned businesses so that study was thick i think it was i think 135 pages is not even what that was i think it was like twice that um, so these studies are by their very nature very dense. But what I didn't like about the study was kind of like it provided a soft landing for the police department. If you uncover something as as um, insidious as racial bias within a police department, I think it's important to frame it as something that is um, just frame it in a different way. And I understand this is a study that's based on analysis, um, but I felt like the analysis to me um, – you could tell I'm anti-analytics in sports. I can tell some some of the analysis kind of just gave you the bare minimum. Uh, and I, what kind of made me more suspicious about the study was how our local press covered it. Um, many headlines after this after the study was re- was released, many headline well many stories or some of the framing of it was you know uh, local leaders optimistic. Find, they find bias, but optimistic. And I didn't even point that out. Someone else pointed that out to me first, and then it just kept st- standing out to me um, how they were just so intent on making sure that optimism was a part of the coverage. And what I would want more from Post and Courier was what I heard during those listening sessions. I'd like to hear more from the people. Now, in all fairness to the Post and Courier, to specifically Michaela um, Porter and Greg Gee. They did um, solicit feedback and um, comment from Dot Scott and other uh, figures in the community, people, um, black people who um, have stature, uh, excuse me, status and um, position here in in Charleston. And that's all well and good. Um, However, I don't think speaking to just them who might have, I believe, maybe maybe just a different perspective, maybe not as fresh. Um, I'd rather just hear from the people who articulated their stories. I'd rather hear from them and, and, and ask them what they wanted to see different. A lot of the solutions were missing as well. Did anyone question the, the, the people who conducted the study? Did anyone question the police department and ask them, you know, about civilian oversight? Did anyone ask them about, within the study, one thing I really didn't like, aside from, um, okay, so I didn't like the study being conducted by cops. I didn't like the study's um, treatment in the press. And I did not like, within the study, there's almost no data or any explanation about use of force stats. In fact, it's in the reporting that the police don't have up-to-date standardized metrics by which to measure use of force by cops. I find that very hard to believe in, in, a, in a county that has gone through Walter Scott, a man that was murdered by North Charleston police officer. Um, I don't want to say his name, but was murdered by law, uh, you know, law enforcement from North Charleston police. You mean to tell me that Charleston County or Charleston police departments didn't run to make sure they had an accurate way to account for how many times the officers used force? 
I know we haven't had another um, murdered citizen at the hands of police that we know of. I mean, but we don't have any accurate accounting. And, and, and the study does say that, right? It says that they suggest, that's one of the suggestions is that they um, update the, the, the way they measure and account for use of force. And there were some other stats that weren't there. And then the, the video retention. So I think there was a big to-do about body cams, which I have an interesting, unpopular take on body cams. We don't need the cops to have body cams. They don't need more cameras on us. We got enough cameras on us. We need cameras facing them. We need more legislation to protect us who film the cops. Because as we've seen as, mo- as recently as Dallas, people who film the cops doing um, you know, committing crimes or, or, or participating in police brutality, they're the ones usually penalized by the law or... You know, we've seen people end up dead. We, uh, this is crazy. But we need stronger legislation to protect us as we film the police. We don't need to be filmed more. We've got cameras all over us, Amazon and, and Facebook and everybody. We we got facial recognition everywhere. We, they're even putting them in the housing projects in certain, certain cities throughout the United States. So, like, we good on cameras on us. Um, and so there's the video retention was an issue within the study. So basically they didn't even have enough video to go back and go review, um, incidents that involved, uh, you know, officers abusing their power. That's unacceptable. Where's the, that's a story to me. To me, that's a headline. To me, that's, that's the headline, not hope and optimism, but Hey, there were some glaring omissions. There were some glaring, um, blind spots. The study couldn't even cover because the police department didn't even have that, didn't even have standardized ways to document how they go about doing their job. So to me, it was like, okay, we'll fall on the sword of we've got racial bias, which is such a, like a, a, a vanilla way of saying, you know, we, we police people based on race, <laughs> like we're racist. You know, they to me that felt like they fell on the sword of racial bias, and that was enough red meat for people like the OGs in the game. That ain't enough red meat for me because I, I already knew you had racial bias. Avery done told me that y'all, y'all, you know, y'all police based on on skin color. We know what you, we know what the police department does here locally. We know how ICE raids are conducted. We know how y'all watch us. We know y'all, you know, y'all have five hundred, you know, uh, people of color from all over the globe, um, I, ICE detainees in Al Cannon. 500 a day on average we know you did that so we know how y'all police people of color what i want to know is why doesn't the police have these mechanisms in place to make sure they measure this and hold these cops accountable for gratuitous force not too long ago the police department made news for another um another uh, uh, uh shameful reason they had one supposedly one rogue officer, but you don't. He was relatively new, so you ain't learned that from watching, you know, The Wire. Uh, he he went around creating fake traffic citations. This was he he resigned from the force. This was this was news. So you had a cop out there ma- fabricating tickets, and I, I only can imagine how many black folk. Or the people he maybe he watched parking lots, watched people leave and enter establishments, and say, "Okay, I'll I'll, I'll write this person up." I, who knows how he came about, how he crafted, um, you know, these tickets and citations. Who knows how, what kind of imagination he used? But being that there's racial bias, uh, you know, validated the racial violence or confirmed racial bias um, at the police department, it wouldn't surprise me if he used uh, race and ethnicity as a way to create these fake citations. So let's talk about the police corruption. That's the word. Let's talk about how there's no, there's very minimal video retention, as the study outlines. 
and, and suggest that they improve. Let's talk about how there's no way they can account for use of force. Let's talk about the six-year-old that was, li- that was um, you know, mentioned in the study, uh, citizens as young as six years old being victims of, um, of use of force. How many minors? We know what you do to the Palmetto Rose peddlers. We know how you police young black bodies. We've seen it. That's why you put up those signs. Outlawing us and restricting our movement. And that's where we go into where I really want to get into today. The policing that we, we see today, the policing that's riddled with, with racial bias and discrimination is a byproduct of an of a, a age-old practice here in Charleston. Of course, it started with slavery. Um, it started with the, the enslavement of, of Africans um, for the use of exploited labor and torture on labor camps uh, here that you know are big tourist attractions. Of course, it starts there, but it didn't stop there, right? It didn't stop when the Emancipation Proclamation was read off, right? It, it, it didn't stop during Reconstruction. The policing and restricting of movements of black bodies in Charleston is an age-old practice. I'm going to play some clips and then um, that kind of outline where I'm going with this in this last 30 minutes. But basically, this is a full circle show, right? And I typically always tie things in with history because we have to understand how, you know, how the past is prologue, as they say. So um, basically, um, uh, over a week ago, I had the distinct privilege of accompanying <laughs> um, Black Voters Matter. I'm now an employee of Black Voters Matter. Woohoo! Um, I'm a state coordinator with Black Voters Matter. And so they had a convening in Montgomery, Alabama. I'd never been to Montgomery, Alabama. I knew what it was in my mind. It was a sepia-toned image of Montgomery, Alabama that was rem- that, that depicted, you know, a, a moment in history of, you know, civil rights fights and the Pettus Bridge and stuff like stuff like that, right? That, that was the image in my mind. It was this static, sepia-toned image of black civil rights movement work. When I got there, I was very, 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 very wrong. I was so happy that that, that that picture, that image of Montgomery, Alabama started to become alive in my mind. Colors started to seep in. Things started to move about because I was privileged enough to sit in a room with women and students of all ages and community members and men of all ages who were following or continuing a tradition of civil rights work in and around voting rights and electoral justice. So for three days, we sat in conference rooms as we, we got training from amazing minds around the country, from Mississippi, mostly in the South, like in the Mississippi and whatnot, people doing progressive work in the Deep South. And it all stemmed from the fight to, uh, you know, the fight to, to gain our civil rights, to be recognized as fully formed citizens in the state, to to. Uh, uh, you know, it all started from civil rights and, and that type of movement work. And these women, even women that were my mama age and older, they were so savvy. They knew their voting rights legislation like it was their name, right? They knew it backwards and forwards. They had mobilization efforts that were that dated back 20 years, some of them, 10 years. They were in schools. They were they had after-school programs. They had girls groups. They had boys groups. They had athletic programs. Shoot, there was even some ethical hackers in there in Alabama. <laughs> I went in there thinking, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna learn from the OGs and hear some some sad stories. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. I left empowered. I left hopeful. I left, uh, you know, equipped with information and tools. 
And what really, um, I guess, punctuated the trip was we got to go to the EGIs, that's the um, Equal Justice Initiatives, um, National Memorial for Peace and Justice, what other people call the Lynching Museum or the Lynching Memorial. And we also got to go to the Legacy Museum. And it was that Legacy Museum that crystallized a lot of what I've been feeling and seeing in Charleston in terms of policing. The Legacy Museum took you on a self-guided tour of from when the first black person was enslaved on this soil and how they were treated in and around certain institutions, specifically the quote-unquote justice system. And when I tell you, I couldn't even take it all in. It, it was so overwhelming. I, I jotted down notes because they don't permit you to take pictures while you're in there with your phone. So I jotted down copious notes, and I was just so moved. That visit to Legacy Museum really helped me understand and help. I didn't even know because the CNA audit findings didn't even they, they weren't even published yet or publicized. And who would have thought that that visit would have set me up to really understand and be able to digest what I read in the audit. So I'm going to play a clip. Um, I'm going to play a clip from the it's, it's like a year or two old. It's when the museums and whatnot first started. And um, make sure I got. Yeah. Um, and this is basically the dedication of the memorial. But I love the ceremony because um, it, it's quick little clips and vignettes of participants um, and outlining the importance of having the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Wh again, what you would probably most notably or most regularly call like um, the lynching memorial down in Montgomery, Alabama. So just take a listen to this. All of us cannot stand here, but each can bow our heads and pray silently for a moment. Talk to God in your own way for a moment. Talk to God in your own way. Talk to God even now. That's the voice of Jesse Jackson. This memorial challenges the darkness. Slavery in America was violent, traumatizing, and tragic. It lasted for over two centuries, creating a wound that has not healed. After emancipation, black people were re-enslaved through Jim Crow laws, disenfranchised and unprotected by the rule of law. There was great suffering. But nothing maintained racial inequality more than lynching. Thousands of black people were drowned, burned, shot, and hanged. Millions fled the American South as refugees. We've been silent about lynching for too long. It's time to end the silence, to memorialize those who died, who fled, who feared the terror our nation tolerated. Only by acknowledging the truth of our past can we have hope for our future. That is the purpose of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. This is its faith dedication, the blessing of this space. We gather this morning to remember. We gather this morning in festive and solemn joy to remember and to make present those ancestors, those foremothers and forefathers who made this place and so many places in our country sacred by the sacrifice of their blood. We gather to remember all those whose names are known, but we also gather to remember those whose names are known only by their God.
But we know the Legacy Museum and this memorial help uncover the truth and help us remember. We remember that pushing black folks around, that controlling and containing and hurting and humiliating and terrorizing and traumatizing was and is deliberate strategy, state strategy. And only when we acknowledge that truth, when we remember that reality, will we be able to loosen the chokehold of white supremacy over this nation. Okay, so I wanted to stop it there, especially that last part of acknowledging how the history informs the present. And um, you might be asking, some of you might be asking, well, what does lynching and the, the mistreatment of, of um, those who suffered through Jim Crow, what does that have to do with policing? It has everything to do with policing because lynching was an act of extrajudicial, uh, it was an extrajudicial act, right? So they didn't wait for justice. We weren't, we weren't extended the justice that was outlined in our founding fathers' documents or those that were amended, right? We weren't extended a due process. And, and, and our government and our systems empowered vigilantes and, and, and hateful men and uh, racists and, and white supremacists. It empowered these men to police black bodies and black communities on their own and, and, de and to deny us due process. People don't understand it, and, and it struck me. Um, people do understand. Let me not say that. Um, people understand, but but it, I was reminded uh, again. I brought I bring up, and I think this is the third time I'm going to bring up the um the exhibition, the Colin Quashi linked exhibition at the Halsey that's currently at the Halsey here, um, uh, on Calhoun Street here, uh, on the College of Charleston campus. Um, the linked ex exhibition outlines so many different things that we struggle with today, right? It, it it tackles um, marriages on on plantations or what we now call labor camps. It talks about you know uh, it, there's a Colin Kaepernick observation. There's a there's a Kanye West observation, and there's a uh, 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 an installation that features the face of George Zimmerman, and over his one one of his eyes is uh, an image of a slave patrol badge. Because people don't understand law enforcement stems from slave patrols, quite literally. Not This is not hyperbole. Um, and I'm just going to read the extended captions that Colin Kwashi um, included that were like they're laminated hanging and they're also online via PDF or in PDF form. Um, but basically, again, this is an image, a black and white image superimposed with a, a, a slave patrol badge over one of George Zimmerman. Uh, his eyes and if you don't know who George Zimmerman is he was the neighborhood watchman who took it upon himself to not just stalk Trayvon Martin a little boy with candy and, and, and sweet tea in his bag on his pockets not only did he stalk this little boy walking back home from from um, the convenience store um, he um, he assaulted he approached aggressed and assaulted and killed and murdered Trayvon um, and cold blood and he's still out here running around causing harm to women and people in communities. So George, again, George Zimmerman's face is superimposed with um, a police patrol badge, a slave patrol badge. And I'm, I'm going to read the quotes um, from Colin Kwashi that accompanies this piece. It says, policing is a relatively modern invention with the first organization being created in Boston in 1838. Slave patrols were created in the Carolina colonies in 1704 and were centered on preservation of slavery. In many states, it became required for duty, excuse me, required duty for white men to serve. 
patrollers traveled through the countryside looking for blacks who were, quote unquote, or quote, not where they belonged. During Reconstruction and thereafter, many local sheriffs functioned in ways analogous to slave patrols by disenfranchising freed slaves and through the application of Jim Crow and segregation. Many black communities face high crime rates and want good relationships with law enforcement, but the distrust is historic. Black Americans continue to see police as the enforcers of systemic inequality and their policing methodology, quote, the most enduring aspect of the struggle for civil rights. And that was taken from someone cited as a waxman in 2017, that last sentence. I'm going to play another clip um, that helps, artic- again, shed more light on um, why policing black bodies, racism, why all that matters and the history of it matters. One thing I, I, was, I neglected to outline was that the study encountered that black people were stopped more often so for dri- so driving violations. So there were, we had uh, black folk who live and work and travel on the peninsula were stopped on average more than their white counterpart. And I want people to understand that increased police interactions cause harm and can lead to something worse than just a ticket or a citation. So I'm going to play a clip. This is going to feature the voice of Samuel Sinyangwe. Um, he's at the new school and he's talking about these police interactions. I'm going to play um, a few minutes of this. So please listen. Um, it's probably about like six minutes or so, six or seven minutes uh, long clip. Please listen. Start with you because let's start with policing. Um, what are you seeing? And based on the data you're seeing, what's your analysis about how police interaction with community is contributing to incarceration rates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No? Uh, yes? All right. Um, so I think, first of all, the slides that you showed um, really are telling. And what the story that they tell is that at every level of the system, um, the system is more harsh towards black people than it is towards white people. Um, and what's also interesting about that is that those effects uh, compile. They compound. So if you are more likely to be stopped by police, searched by police, arrested by police for the same activity as a white person, uh, you are more likely to be killed by police. If, that, if you're not killed by police, you're more likely to have force used against you during that interaction. Um, and then after that arrest, your entire journey through the system at each point uh, is you have a higher probability of a worse outcome. So much so, but by the time you get out of that system, if you get out of that system, uh, your probability of having a, ne- a, a negative outcome is just so astronomically higher than a white person who did the exact same thing. Um, so that's one of the things to think about is that each, usually when we talk about this, we talk about a segment of the system. Um, so whether it's you know the policing side or it is we're talking about bail and we're talking about prosecution, we're talking about uh, sentencing, we're talking about uh, you know release and probation and parole, you know, each of these segments of it, but when you add it all together, the effect really is um, extremely severe. So, so my work is focused on the front end of that system, on the policing side. Uh, in particular, it has been focused on since August 9th, 2014, when Mike Brown Jr. was killed in Ferguson. When I got into this work, 
it has been focused on collecting data on police interactions with communities uh, to better understand how police are interacting with communities, in particular when those interactions turn violent, when police are violent uh, and community members are, are hurt or killed, um, what explains those outcomes? Why is it, you know, when we collected this data, uh, one of the first things we found was that black people were three times more likely to be killed by police um, than white people and more likely to be unarmed. Um, and so the question is, you know, why is that the case? Um, and how do we effectively use the data to actually get at solutions? Because I think so much, so often in these conversations, we're in a place where, you know, we are talking about huge structural problems and it can be very overwhelming. Um, but it's important to note that it was a series of policies and practices that got us to this place. Uh, and so it is not something that just happened that is just sort of the natural way that things always are and will always be. It, these are intentional decisions by decision makers, many of whom are elected by us. Um, and this can be undone, right? Justice systems can be built, systems can be constructed and replaced. Um, and so I think at a high level, that, that's what my work focuses on. In a more particular uh, piece of it, it looks at when you are in a community, what is your probability of having an interaction with police? And what are, what's the probability that those interactions turn violent? Um, and so to give you some statistics, uh, young black people, black millennials, uh, between the ages of 18 and 29, the majority, 54%, have either personally experienced police violence or know somebody personally who's experienced police violence. So this is how deep it is to the extent where most folks who look like me will have known somebody or personally experienced violence at the hands of the state. Um, so it, it is incredibly deep and, and widespread. Um, and so our work is really focused on addressing, addressing those issues through policy change. Can you, um, before we go to Vince, which and you're gonna get the same question except on all the levels of the criminal justice system, but say a little bit more, Sam, about the, the policy opportunity. We'll come back to it, but just give us a couple of high lines on the policy possibilities that the data helps suggest. Yeah, so a couple of things. One, policing has changed over the past several decades. So uh, similar to those charts showing the growth of mass incarceration, those coincide with uh, the adoption of the war on drugs, of broken windows policing, a style of policing uh, that has fo in focused an intensive and expanding amount of resources and police officers in communities of color uh, focusing on what they call low-level or broken windows offenses. And New York City is created this strategy, is sort of the, the champion of this strategy. Even today, you know, um, Mayor de Blasio, this is his strategy. He supports this as well. I mean, they've been doing this for decades, right? And so what this means is that all of a sudden, you are now subject to arrest and police intervention for doing really low-level stuff. So um, having really loud music or you know, having a small amount of marijuana or an open container of alcohol or uh, jumping a, a turnstile at the subway, things that had not previously been the explicit focus of policing. It tended to be uh, decades before that police would respond when called um, and that it was, it was still racist, but the level of policing of those lower-level uh, offenses was much lower than it is today. And the tactics and strategies, the militarization of those approaches has also increased. And so um, those are some of the broader trend lines that we've seen over the past several decades that have got us to where we are today, where so many resources are, are concentrated in policing and incarceration. Uh, and so many people, particularly black and brown people, are being caught up 
in this sort of dragnet that is catching people for the smallest of things and ending up uh, leaving you with a really severe consequence uh, if you survive that encounter at all. Well, that was really powerful because I think um, if anyone's a fan of like dystopian literature, like 1984 or even like, um, what's the movie um, Tom Cruise was in? Um, where they talked about pre-crime, you know, it just, that's what it feels like. Like the policing has, um, nowadays they're almost trying to just use race as a way to determine, well, we've, we, we know these people to be offenders of crime X. So we're going to be proactive and stopping you and, and asking you questions and, and increasing your number of police interactions because that way we'll find a crime that we know you're able to, that you're liable to commit. This is Tamika Gadsden, um, a.k.a. Mika. You're listening to Mic'd Up on OM, broadcasting live from Workshop uh, downtown Charleston. And what you, who you just heard was, again, was a Samuel Sinyangwe. Um, he's a, a renowned advocate uh, f- to help shed light on the crisis that is uh, police violence and murder, and extrajudicial extra killings at the hand of police. Um, throughout the country and so he's been a voice that I constantly refer to um, not just on Twitter but like his work and listening to him speak in presentation forms like what you just heard is important Um, again we're trying to unpack what we found in the CNA audit and I already listed the the objections I had or the problems I had the the red flags that emerged from not only the findings but how the findings have been presented to the public Um, let me just start off again rattling real quick I'm gonna make these last 10 minutes count basically what we learned um, is that the CNA audit was conducted at least included um, employees who were members of form, former members of, the, of law enforcement. So that colors the way the, the, the study was conducted. We also know that there is, um, and I just read this in the summary um, while you were listening to the clip, um, there's uh, an emphasis on the progress the police have been making, which is interesting because it's a study to determine whether or not there was racial bias. There is, but there seems to be um, an emphasis on progress, not only within the summary, within the audit, but also in, in local reporting, this progress piece. The captain, Captain Reynolds, or whatever his name is, Reynolds is talking about progress, and Dot Scott is talking about progress, and the reporters made sure to include hope and progress in, in the byline, and, 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 and that's really weird to me because we just diagnosed the problem and we already arrived at the conclusions that they're going to fix it, which is weird. Um, I found objections on, again. So, so how it was reported, it was conducted by cops. Um, there's very little t- attention paid to the 290 citizens who participated, who, who gave their, um, testimonies, who I sat in and listened to, um, for over an hour at a listening session in West Ashley. They, I feel like their voice is not represented well. Um, also with the study also discovered along with the fact that, confirming the fact that there is racial bias within the Charleston PD. We also found within the study that there's, um, that they don't retain videos well, that the length of time that they have to retain the videos is minimal, is minuscule. Um, I can't quote how long they keep it because I don't think the actual, I don't think it was listed. I think they, they, um, that one of the, uh, recommendations was that they improve that, um, and, and have a, a specific time by which, um, videos retain. Also, what was noted in the study, there is no standardized way to document use of force and deadly use of force by police department, by police officers. That's a big, 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 big problem. So when the, when the audit firm went to go and say how many, see how many times that use of force 
was employed, there weren't there wasn't any reliable it wasn't there was less reliable data than they needed to conduct the study. So basically you had these big gaping holes. It looks like a lot of words, y'all, but it's really just saying we don't have enough data. We don't have enough data. We don't have enough data. They don't have a standardized way to document how many times cops use force. Um, we know that the study also discloses that um, folks as young as six years old were victim to use of force by cops. I want to know more about that. I want to know who was, who was um, you know, how many women. I want to know how many immigrant uh, community members were victims of use of force. I want to know how that's broken down. I want to know how citizenship is broken down. Um, and all of that was just not within the report. So, so the report to me was, hey, we're going to give you red meat and say that there was racial bias, but we're also not going to go in and divulge some of the more insidious practices. As you just heard with Samuel Sinyangwe, you know, the increase, increased um, stops lead to more and more unsavory or, or even sometimes deadly outcomes for black people. This, the peninsula is not even predominantly black anymore. So how are you stopping us at record numbers, like twice, twice the rate of, of, of our white counterparts if we make up far, far less of the population? Also, what Sam hit on, hit on in the last maybe 10 to 20 seconds was he talked about how they, they, uh, how they use things like traffic stops, and that's what the study uncovered. The traffic stops were the biggest. Uh, well, that's the one they promoted the most um, in the paper. But traffic stops was, the, was a main vehicle by which they could see most of this bias. It was more illustri- illustrated, uh, uh, illustrated better in the traffic stops. So what that means is that they're stopping us for noise ordinances. And I've seen that. I've seen my black friends go live after being stopped for a noise ordinance for playing hip-hop music. I, I've yet to hear anyone talk about getting um, a noise ordinance citation for those, exa- those, those, those double exhausts on those mudding trucks. And those are very loud. Or those Harley Davidsons. I, I, don't, I don't hear that. Not to say that all white men drive Harleys and black men don't, but we know who, who drives them the most and who drives those mudding trucks the most. But I know that I've seen black bodies get pulled over for noise ordinances, which is hard to even measure. And yet I can hear girls screaming, uh, young white girls screaming and with the windows down. And I know I'm kind of going on a little rant, but I've seen disparities just anecdotally, I guess. Um, my experience with, with that noise ordinance is, is, is bananas, um, what I've seen and what I've been privy to myself. Um, so, yeah, you know, you continue to stop black people in hopes that you catch them committing crimes. Um, that's what they're hoping for. And, I, and I, I'm willing to, to venture out and say that the success rate is probably low, right? Probably for every 10 black people they stop, they probably um, just, like, have one person have something, like, that's off probably even higher than that it's probably more like probably like 20 or 30 people they stop maybe one is off that's just my guess um especially listening to the room of older older black people um one woman was quoted in the paper as like the cop thought she was a black male that fit the description and it was an elderly black woman instead or a woman of a certain age and like so you're stopping people based on what they look like I can only imagine like what what these approaches are. So what I would love to see more of or hear more dialogue is dialogue like we just heard from the from the new school and dialogue of what I heard and witnessed um, when I went to uh, the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. Shout out to all of the movement workers. Shout out to all the civil rights and social justice workers in Montgomery, Alabama, in Selma, um, all those other cities in Alabama which uh, the names I can't pronounce that are beautifully indigenous and I don't want to 
this joy. But shout out to all of those community members from throughout the state of Alabama who came and convened uh, with Black Voters Matter a couple weeks ago. It was a powerful weekend, and it was just, it changed my whole life. And it just came right on time and helped me unpack what I was reading in this CNA audit. We need to be able to question power, y'all. We can't keep taking things at face value. We can't afford to do that. We have to look at the other side of it. I know people say that, Tamika, you always find something wrong. You, you're darn right I find something wrong because that's my job. My job is to find, to look at it as all, at all angles. I do have an opinion, an, an informed opinion, about a lot of policies and legislation. And that's not a bad thing. I have a lot of opinions about it. Sometimes I'm, I feel neutral on a lot of things, right? But there's things I'm very passionate about. And the policing of black and, ba- black and brown bodies, we know, again, is a practice that predates um, the, the 1800s, um, starts as early as the 1700s, as I read um, from the Colin Clashy, um uh, extended captions. Um, I have two book suggestions that I want folk to dive into if you want to kind of understand how attitudes towards black people being free in Charleston, how those attitudes that um, started in the um, 1800s, 1700s, how those kind of translate into the policing that we see currently. Please go to the library and read um, this book I checked out. It's actually, has two copies on the shelf. So uh, The Wars of Reconstruction by Douglas Egerton. Egerton is spelled E, G is in Gregory, E-R-T-O-N. Um, and, of course, my go-to, my GOAT, the the my all things black in Charleston, like this is this is what you go to. This is I don't want to call it the Bible because that might offend some people, but this is this is my oh this is the everything book. It is Denmark VC's Garden by Ethan Keitel and Blaine Roberts. Yes, I interviewed them before. Yes, you heard me talk about this book a lot. Yes, but within Denmark VC's Garden, this is actually how I learned more about the quote unquote black codes, which I didn't wasn't able to jump into. The black codes that emerged before Jim Crow, like around around Reconstruction, when, when white folk were mad that we were free, so they enacted a bunch of codes that restricted our movements. And that's what these traffic stops, these high-volume traffic stops by the Charleston Police Department, they, they're reminiscent of those black codes where they, they want to restrict your movement. You're designed to police you to the point where you, you're policing to passivity and into just staying in a certain spot. And if you get stopped so much downtown, you'll stop coming downtown. You get my point? You get it? You get it? So the policing is a deterrent where they don't want you. And so that's what happened. That's what we saw. We saw those stories illustrated in Denmark VC's Garden. Just go to the back of both of those books, look up Black Codes, and then revisit the chapters and pages that talk about um, the Black Codes and how Black bodies were policed and um, harassed and pushed out uh, off the peninsula, how the Tulalu came crashing down, how that celebration of freedom was destroyed because of the policing of black bodies, specifically black women. I, on a previous show about black women's labor, I talked about how it was there were various ordinances forcing black women to work, forcing black people to work. There were vagrancy laws. Basically, if you were free, but you ain't had no job, you couldn't walk around Charleston. You had to have a job. There were ordinances put in place in Charleston and Greenville throughout the South. And each of these um, pro-segregation states that just couldn't let go of the institution of slavery, they all copied off each other. They all borrowed a little from this one. This one borrowed from Alabama. This one borrowed from Louisiana. This one borrowed from Alabama. And so you'll see consistent legislation throughout the South where you restrict the movements of black people. And we saw it a lot here in Charleston. A lot. 
So understanding the police presence, the har- this is, it's a form of harassment to kind of train you not to be a certain place. That's why when we go out in Charleston, we need to take up space, black people. We need to celebrate. We need to enjoy these hotels if we want to, not the racist ones. We need to enjoy these establishments. We need to enjoy these, these bars, these breweries. We need to go out there and take up space because they don't want us there. And the more we just continue to defy and walk in the tradition of a Denmark VC, of a Harriet Tubman, of Ida B. Wells, the more we do that, the better off we'll be. So please um, just check out the show notes for more information, more books that I'll suggest, more links to the content I played. Until next time, y'all, y'all stay free. And to all my black people, y'all stay black. <laughs>